we're going to be uh, spending the month of Advent in the book of Luke, first and second chapter of Luke, and it's just the Christmas story. If you've been around faith for a while, you've heard this many times. We're going to try to take a fresh look at it. We're beginning a four-week series we're calling True Religion, and one of our newly elected elders, Bill Russell, will be uh, communicating with us today. So Bill will come in just a minute. He's going to be reflecting on Luke 1, verse 1 through 25. And I'm going to ask Brett to read that. And if you don't mind, let's go old school and let's stand out of reverence for God's word. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Father, we... I ask this morning that you would prepare us. That's what you do. You do a work in us, uh, creating us in Christ Jesus to do good works that you've prepared in advance for us, preparing both us and the work for us to do so that we meet at exactly the right moment. And God, we pray that today would be both the moment that we have been prepared for and a continuing of our preparation. Lord, we 
offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you today, and we ask that you would break open our chests and massage your truth into it. We do not believe we're here by accident. We believe that all of us are here appointed by your design to hear something from you, and I pray that Bill's words today would be your word through him. God, hear us and speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hopefully everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I don't know if you had the same experience I did where you went to bed saying, oh, wow, Thanksgiving is done, and that was wonderful, only to wake up and realize, wow, Christmas is already here, and it's time for Advent season. Did anybody else have that kind of feeling like we had no break in between? I love several things that happen around this time of year, and I'm sure that you guys uh, do as well, and it's just a tremendous thing to be able to go into this Advent season together with you. So, you know, as we kick off this Advent series, the title of it is True Religion, True Religion, and the reason we're choosing this is to kind of delineate between what we have come to think of as the Advent season versus What is the truth? What is the hard truth therein? And so, what is true religion? One of the things that we're going to see about true religion is that it's not so much true versus false. What we're looking at is the subtleties, and those subtleties matter. See, the first subtlety we're going to explore together is that true religion is not about tradition. True religion is not about tradition. Now, when we're, we're thinking of traditions, right, uh, we all have different traditions, I assume. Who in here has some kind of tradition that they can think of during the holiday season, during Christmas, during Thanksgiving? We know what traditions are like, right? Quite a few hands. Well, you know, we have different traditions, you know, at Christmas time. Maybe one of those is we're going to spend time with family. That's an awesome tradition. I love spending time with family. We also might have traditions of maybe songs we sing. We all get around and sing songs. I have no musical talent, so I tend to avoid those types of traditions. Maybe you guys can sing, and that would be wonderful. I have some kids with musical talent. I'm hoping that they step up and they can bring that tradition in. You know, that would be exciting. That would be very fun. But if it involves me singing, probably not the best. We have traditions around food. Somebody this morning told me they had jello pudding. I was trying to put that together in my head. I didn't know how you get jello and pudding together, but I don't know if that's a tradition. Maybe you have certain breads you make or casseroles you make. For me, what speaks to me during this season is we do fondue. We have a cheese fondue that we do. I love it. It's, you know, kind of course one, and then it's followed after cheese fondue. We've got, you know, all the meats and stuff, and then after that, we have dessert fondue. And this speaks to me. When I think of, when I think of Christmas... I think uh, this is a very, very important tradition. But Luke chapter 1 is obviously not about uh, those type of traditions, but we hear this story each year. Who's heard this story before? Okay, some of you are sleeping, it's okay, but most of us have heard this story in some fashion before, this idea that this baby is coming into the world, and prior to Jesus being born in a manger, we get a couple of visitations, and we're exploring the first visitation. Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, and to Elizabeth to tell them about John. And if I were just to give this account in a traditional setting, it might go something like this. 
So Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren, old in age, from the priestly line, both sides. So you've got both the Aaronic line for Elizabeth as well as Zechariah. So this is good stuff, right? God likes to show miracles when we see situations where somebody can't have a baby. That seems like prime time for God to show up and and do something. So God shows up and says, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to make ready for the Lord. We could almost stop and go, wow, we've heard the story. What a great story. And it's kind of the traditional story. And that's not wrong. None of that's wrong. What is it missing? What is it missing? See, we're going to look at some clues about this passage of Luke 1 that Brett read for us this morning. And if you want to read along with me, go to John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. Now, I want to give the backdrop of this. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry here, and he's standing before Pilate. And Pilate is trying to figure out what he's going to do with Jesus. He is trying to figure out whether or not he is going to allow him to be crucified or if he's going to set him free. And so he asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And then we get into this section here. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. That's kind of a weird word play. That must have been annoying for Pilate, but I love how Jesus did that. You say that I am a king. And then it continues, for this purpose, and here's our clue, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So here what's interesting about the tradition or the story that is passed on from generation to generation, right? There's the part we like to hear, and then there's the gritty details that we often gloss over. And when we ask, or when Pilate asks, what is truth, is that not where we find ourselves in trying to analyze the grit of life? What is truth? What are you really doing, God? And what I found really frustrating, so this, this whole passage is narrative. So in theological narrative, there's a point to the story. It's not just there to tell a good story, albeit this is a good story. There is a point to theological narrative. And so I'm trying to ask myself, what the heck is the point? See, I could focus on different things. God gives children if you're barren? No. That they were priestly and godly? No. What's the point? See, what is the truth gets to the heart of trying to figure out what God's doing. And in this passage, we'll see that the truth is in the readiness. God is interested in making us ready. As we try to analyze truth, this brings in a great story, that I, not so much a story, but a great thing that, that I heard about, about a statue in Malibu, California. It's in the Paul Getty Museum. Some of you may have heard of it, maybe not. And this statue that was found, now famously called the Getty Kuros statue, is a fascinating story. Uh, This happened in the 1980s. It it was being sold by a a very wealthy doctor who had procured this artifact from a wealthy art collector, an antiquities dealer. And they had this statue and they were offering it to the museum. And the amount of work that went into figuring out 
whether this statue is authentic is, is incredible. They spent 14 months analyzing it. I have to look at my notes because I won't even remember how to say these things unless I do. Some of the things they looked at over the 14 months. First, they took a core sample from behind the knee. That I might have remembered without looking at my notes. But uh, they took a core sample to figure out what quarry it came from. And they found that it came from the right quarry. It was the Varthi quarry of Thassus. And that quarry was known for these type of statues, so it, it made sense. They analyzed it under electron microscope, did mass spectrometry. I have no idea what that is. X-ray diffraction. Okay. X-ray fluorescence. Whatever they do to antiquities, they were doing all these different things. And for 14 months, they would go through all of these different steps. They had experts from around the world, some of the top minds looking at this. So they look at this, and they, what they figured out is that the uh, content from the core sample, it was dulcite marble. They were almost certain that this marble is from the right location, so that makes sense. And then there was a really, really important test that was done. And that important test found that there was a thin layer of calcite on the outside of this statue. And that thin layer of calcite was important because it could only really occur after being exposed for hundreds, if not over a thousand years. So it's a very slow process. So the, the point of that, of course, is that it's old. It's an old statue. It has to be old. So that, taken with all the other evidences and 14 months of research and several scholars, they came to the conclusion, unquestionably, this is authentic. That's a lot of work to go into the uh, research, right? So they, this is all the work that they did. This statue is not a, a cheap prize. It's around $9 million was the transaction. So right before it would be opened up to the general public, Evelyn Harrison, who's a world-renowned antiquities expert, comes in, and they want to show off. The curator of the museum wants to show off their new statue called the, the Kuros. Very, very excited. And so the curator, you know, is doing the, hey, yeah, it's not ours yet, but it will be. So are you ready? And <sighs> takes off the sheet, and the first thing out of Evelyn's mouth is, I'm sorry. And then says, I hope you can get your money back. So you got to love the irony here. 14 months of research and about two seconds, Dr. Harrison or whatever says, you know, this is not, this is not real. She wouldn't even really be able to identify why. She was just kind of going on instinct. There was something wrong. And later would figure out it was the dirt under the fingernails wasn't right. But it's an extraordinary thing. This statue would then become the subject of... 19 different scholarly papers. There's a ton of research now done on this thing. As of last year, the museum has officially abandoned it and said it is, in fact, a forgery. They would later find out that the calcite they could actually reproduce from potato mold, creating some kind of chemical reaction in a lab. The documents, there was a huge paper trail. It turns out that all the documents after a certain point were forged so they could figure out that they weren't legit. The torso of the statue, what they figured out is that the torso actually resembled a torso of a known forgery from the same region. And the end conclusion was that it was, in fact, a fake. Tradition is our Getty Kuros. It can look legit. Tradition is our Getty Kuros. And I say that 
because when we look at our traditions, it looks true. It looks right. And there are lots of aspects about it that are true. But the question is, are we looking at it in all of its grit? Not just the tradition, but its grit. What do I mean by that? See, true religion can be disruptive. True religion can be disruptive. This is a highway in Alaska that last year experienced a 7.0 earthquake. Pretty massive disruption to the early morning commute. Can you imagine riding down the highway and you're like, oh, the highway's kind of missing. That would slow you down, right? Like, I think I'd want to get out and take a look too. So they took a picture of this. This is the kind of disruption, though, that I think is a great picture for us as we look at what is true religion. See, when I say it's disruptive and it's gritty, what do I mean? So there's a different way to share the same story. So I could point out, for example, what are the disruptors in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life? What were some of the things that were disruptive? First, Elizabeth is barren. So is that a disruptor? Yeah. She wants to have kids, but she can't. So there's the nice picture story of everything's going well, they're godly, and we're even told in the account that they were considered blameless, which is awesome. But to be barren would beg the question of, wait, are you actually living the right life? Is there some sin in your life? Is there something wrong that... You know, maybe you need to confess before God. These are, these are terrible things, but these are the type of questions that maybe the community might have been asking, if not aloud, perhaps secretly. So this was a disruptive thing. This would have rocked their world. A second disruptor here is that uh, Zechariah is chosen. So now to understand the chosenness of this, uh, there's 24 priestly lines, or 24 different groups that start all the way back in the time of Solomon, and they would take a one-week period twice a year, And during that week, somebody would be chosen by lot. And they would go into the temple and burn incense, and people would be praying for the nation. And the incense was meant to be a representation of all the prayers. So Zechariah was chosen by lot. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Is it good? Absolutely, but it's still a disruptor. Sometimes we have good things happen in our lives, right? But they still kind of disrupt our normal way of going about life. Third potential disruptor we can look at is uh, that an angel shows up. Hello. That would kind of make for a different day. Angel shows up, going to start talking to you. Gabriel shows up and announces that you're going to give birth to a baby boy named John, and John is going to make ready the way of the Lord. Well, that's huge. And like any good person who's just had experienced a miracle, Zechariah asked the important question, how will I know? Dude, you just had an angel show up. I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. I want to give some free counsel for all of you out there. If an angel shows up to you and shares something with you that's in line with Scripture, go ahead and just take it at face value. And then maybe let us know later, because that would be pretty cool to hear about. But crazy disruption, right? Then another disruptor, not a bad one, but definitely a disruptor, pregnancy. Elizabeth's going to go into seclusion for five months. Don't really know why she goes into seclusion, but there's a lot going on there. But the last disruptor is really probably one that, you know, he had coming. If you, if you aren't going to believe God's message, Zechariah was struck mute, right? So he was struck dumb. 
So, you know, these are different ways of looking at the disruptors. Now, the disruptors are, are gritty, right? Disruption is gritty. We, in tradition, gloss over grit. In our lives, we gloss over grit. We gloss over the difficulties, the challenges. We put on our great face, our great smiles. But the reality is, when God's working, there's grit. See, when God is doing a work, he's going to be taking life and all of its good, bad, and whatever, and he will use it. Because God doesn't waste anything. God uses all that grit. So that brings us back to, okay, then what is true religion about? And true religion is really about, as we see here, preparation. True religion is about preparation. And you'll notice this pause button here. This pause button is really significant. See, as we look at the Lucan account here, we could very easily miss the whole point of this passage, which is found in verses 16 and 17. Remember, I told you narrative tends to drive towards a point. It tries to highlight something. And it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. To make what? A prepared people. See, the point of this whole narrative section here is that we would be ready. Now, as we've kicked off the Advent season, what you may or may not know is that Advent just means coming of the Lord. Now, traditionally, we think of coming of the Lord as a baby, but there's a second coming as well. Jesus will return. And the next time, it's not as the cute baby in a manger. The next time, he's wrapping things up. See, God is at this process of doing a preparation in our lives. Now, I don't know where you are in God's preparation of your life. Some of us are being prepared in difficult ways, whether it be medical trials. Maybe we have cancer. Maybe we have a chronic disease. Maybe we are struggling with any number of things that we just can't. Maybe debilitating migraines. See, there's so many different things that God could be using. God may be using trials in your relations. Maybe you had a huge fight with a sibling and you don't know how to resolve it. You want to make it right, but you can't. See, God will use all of these different things. But God's preparation has a purpose, just like there's a purpose in Luke chapter 1. I want to give an account of a story that's very near and dear to me, and that's how my dad came to Christ. About two years into our marriage, my wife and I were camping, and it's probably around 10.30 at night. We're in bed, and they're in our sleeping bags, and all of a sudden, I get this crazy feeling from head to toe that my dad is going to die. And I look over at Lisa and I say, I, I, don't, I can't explain this, but my dad is going to die. 
and he's going to die tonight. And began fervently praying, God, please do not take my dad until I know he knows you. For about four years prior to that would be my own walk of faith where I'd be trying to share with my dad. And he was pretty hostile to my faith. Uh, it was not the easiest relationship once I became a Christian. A couple times he threatened to throw me out and either give up your faith or give up this Christian nonsense or I'm going to kick you out. And then I would say, okay, then I guess I need to go. And then he would retract it. I'm really thankful he did because I'm not really sure what my plan would have been. But, you know, these were things that were going on. But, you know, in the middle of that, he did something kind of crazy in the middle of that. He was like, I'd like to do a Bible study with you. I was like, oh, cool, yeah, I would love to do a Bible study. What would you like to do it on? He goes, I think I'd like to study hell. Okay, I can think of maybe better places to start. But he really wanted to study hell, so we spent weeks going through this study together on hell. But then nothing happened. And so I don't know what God's doing, but see, the whole time God is preparing my dad He's preparing him in different ways along the way. He's going through all kinds of medical problems. Now we fast forward to this uh, time where I'd pray. I'd find out right after that night where I'd had that feeling he was going to die, he had had a massive heart attack, and they brought him back with paddles. And I am convinced that he lived because I was praying. Wednesday night, I'd get a call from my uncle, who I credit with leading me to Christ. And my uncle called and said, hey, I just want to let you know your dad trusted Christ. I went through all the people I was praying for. I got to his name. I said, Lord, I know he knows you. And the next morning, my dad passed away. Crazy encounter. But see, the preparation doesn't end there. See, my dad's life starts leading to other people's lives. I would go out to Hawaii and meet up with my grandmother who was taking care of my dad and his months leading up to that. And she said, I got to share with you this crazy dream your dad had. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. And she said, so he woke up about a week ago, and he was all crazed-eyed, and and he said, I have this crazy dream, and and he started sharing. He goes, I was in a room, and it was completely dark, and I had to get the lights on. My dad was an electrician. It's fascinating how God will use the things that really connect with us to make his points. But he says, I was trying to run all this wire and trying to get the wire everywhere I could go because all these people I knew, and he started naming different people, and all these people, everyone I knew was in this room, and they, they were all going to die if the light didn't come on. And my grandmother said, so what happened? He goes, I, I don't know. I woke up. And it was wild, because as he was sharing the story, I've never really quite had this experience before then, but as she was sharing his dream, I felt like I understood it. Like it just kind of resonated in, and it was like, this is why I took your dad. Because these people wouldn't come to Christ unless this happened. About five in the morning, lights are out. My grandmother and I are cashing in for the night after a very emotional uh, day. We lay down and the light across the room, one of those three-way manual lights, comes on by itself. It's like the culmination to the dream. Now, I don't know how God did that. I don't want to get into all the theology. I don't know if he gave my dad a parting, hey, right before you go, you want to do that? Or he let an angel do that, or I have no idea. What I know is that it, it was a powerful moment for me. And I know because of what happened there, 
My dad led to multiple people coming to Christ. My mom would come to Christ. My stepdad would come to Christ. A dear friend of his would come to Christ. And it all started there. But it's gritty. It was hard. But see, true religion is about preparation. Now, the pause button here is important because as we look at what does this pause button represent, we have to turn to Malachi chapter 4. See, that passage we just read in, in Luke was actually a small piece, which is in blue, which I didn't realize how small that is probably to you guys, but is that blue section at the bottom in Malachi chapter 4. And it's important to understand the full context of this verse. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, the real context of this verse, see, this account of John should have terrified the people because if God had seen this plan all the way through then without pressing pause, we'd be done. But God pressed the pause button because he wanted you and he wanted me to have a chance at eternal life. He wanted you and me to have a chance. He was preparing us. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God pressed pause, and he left us these words to challenge us with one question. Are you ready? Are you ready? Somebody's ready. Don't take this question lightly. My dad passed away when he was 42, and I will forever remember that every day of my life is borrowed time. See, this season is not just about, hey, let's get together with family, let's have some cool gifts, and let's enjoy our family traditions together. This season is a serious reflection of, are you ready? Not only did Jesus come, Jesus is coming again. For those of you who have already made a profession of faith and you've accepted Christ, the are you ready is actually part two of this. Jesus is coming back. You ready? Amen. See, we've got all of our great goals and aspirations, and it's not that the goals and aspirations are wrong, but they've got to be subject to the realization that we can't take any of it with us. We have to know that there is one 
major question that has to be resolved in our life. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, are you ready? I don't want to go too quickly through this, and I want to give you a chance to think about it. Some of you have been contemplating a long time. It's like that Kuro statue. You need another 14 months to solve every little piece and nugget. You're sure your expert analysis will lead you to the end conclusion? You might not have that long. Now, there are times when people will say, you know, close your eyes and, you know, don't look around and raise your hands. And I'm going to be a little more bold than that. And I'm going to be a little more bold than that because, frankly, the time of timidity has passed. And I'm going to ask you right now, is there anyone in this room who today would like to trust in Jesus as their Savior? And I'm just going to ask you to show me with, with a hand. Praise God. Anyone else? Anyone else that God has been working in your life and in your heart? Praise God. Anyone else? You may not get this chance again. And if you walk out of here and say, oh, well, maybe next time, and you start to feel convicted, I'm going to challenge you right then and there where you are. Say, Lord, I believe. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to welcome you one more time. And I just want to echo what Ed had said. We really believe that none of us are here by accident. And we're excited that we all get to participate together in this and in the work that God is doing that in our lives to bring us here. And to hear that question and to consider it seriously today as you go through your day. And I'm going to give the last line to McKenna. What do we say? Go in peace, everyone, and make sure to int introduce yourself to someone new today. Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you.